second reading this afternoon is Romans 13, 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there's any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So far, the reading of God's Word. The sermon this afternoon is connected to Lord's Day 34. So Lord's Day 34, the first question, what is God's law? And there follow the Ten Commandments, which we read this morning, so we'll not that read that a second time. We'll go to question answer 93. How are these commandments divided into two tables? The first has four commandments, teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and in love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. Last question and answer, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. If you're wondering why I'm preaching on this Lord's Day this afternoon, it's the last sermon I wrote on the Heidelberg Catechism. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, throughout the Catechism it's made clear that the law has a dual purpose. In the first place, it reveals our sins so that it brings us to Jesus Christ who paid for all our sins against the law. And secondly, God's law is a guideline for holy living. We see that in Lord's Days 34 and following, which talks about a life of thankfulness to our God. There's also another use of the law. In the time of the Reformation, Calvin and Luther both taught that the law, the Ten Commandments, function to create a civil, peaceable society. 
And I certainly saw that in my youth, which admittedly was a, a long time ago. But when I was a kid, when I was a boy, Sunday was an absolute day of rest. Not a truck on the road. No stores open. It was illegal to use God's name in vain. Adultery was frowned upon. Abortion was a crime. And so on and so forth. The Ten Commandments function in society as a whole to create a very peaceable and civil society. But oh, things have, have changed. Using God's name in vain, not keeping the Sabbath day, we see that all the time and all around us. Even the commandment, you shall not murder, it functions in a certain way, and yet it's okay to murder an unborn baby or to assist in, in suicide of someone who's, let's say, mentally ill or, or sick. And as for the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, don't even get me started. Brothers and sisters, it's not just that, you know, slowly society has changed and, and let things go. There's a whole new philosophy in our culture. We live in what's called a postmodern age. And postmodernism says there's no such thing as lasting rules and laws and morals and values. That throws the Bible right out the window. What postmodernism says, particularly to Christians, is all claims to speak the truth are really claims to power. They are forms of manipulation. Instead of fostering freedom, they merely engender constraint and coercion. In other words, if as a Christian we say abortion is illegal and it's murder, then our society doesn't just, you know, just brush us off and say you're old-fashioned. No, it says you are abusive. You are seeking power. You're just coming up with this rule and law in order to control others, and we will not stand for it. There's a reason why our society doesn't want Christians to become professors or politicians or doctors. There's a reason why a couple of years ago our school, Parkland Emanuel Christian School, was threatened with withdrawal of funds and possibly not even giving diplomas, you know, credentials to go on to college or university if they didn't agree to this gay uh, alliance, uh, gay clubs in, in, our, in our schools. I mention these things not just as points of, of interest and concern, but also that we stand on guard that this new way of thinking doesn't creep into our circles. Again, not to sound like the old guy in the room, but I have watched in my lifetime many churches that were relatively conservative change. They accept abortion. They accept practicing homosexuality. The Sunday, you can take it or you can leave it. And you know, whatever's going on in the world slowly but surely creeps into the church as well. We need to stand on guard. God's law, what God has told us in his word, is lasting and it is good. And as we sang in Psalm 19, it is sweet. We're going to look at that this afternoon. It's only when God's law is valued and followed that we truly We'll live in a, a relationship of love with our God and with our neighbor. 
summarize our sermon in this way, the blessing of the law in the life of a Christian. We'll see how the law works and why God is number one. We're going to start with a pop quiz. That's what pop quizzes are. You didn't know this was coming. But let's see how you do. And I don't want anyone to raise their hand or say anything out loud, but it's going to be a silent pop quiz. Okay, here's the question. How do the Ten Commandments start? You have your answer? Who said, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, you're right, that's the first commandment, but it's not how the Ten Commandments start. Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And that's not a commandment at all. That's a declaration of God's love and grace and salvation. He says, I am the Lord your God. And you notice Lord there is in capital letters, and as we saw this morning, that means in Hebrew it's Yahweh. And that brings us back to Exodus 3, where the Lord met Moses at the burning bush, and he says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I am the great I am. I am who I am. And in that culture of that day and in the Hebrew language, to say, I am, is another way of saying, I exist apart from this world, apart from this creation. I'm not created, says God. I existed before and outside this world. I'm infinite. But the great I am has become Emmanuel, is entered into his creation, connecting himself with us, with people, saying to us, I am your God. I want a relationship with you. I want to, I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. That in itself is amazing, brothers and sisters, because anybody else of importance doesn't want to talk to me. If I send a messenger, a message to our prime minister, uh, prime minister Trudeau and say, you want to get together for a coffee? You want to get together for a beer or a glass of wine? He's not even going to answer me. But I say to God, Father, and he stops everything and he listens to me. He's got all the time in the world for me. He's got all the time in the world for any one of us who calls on on him. He says to us, I am the Lord, your God. And that that's a, a saying that, that comes with, with promises, with reality. The, the same politician that might not have any time for me is certainly willing to make all kinds of promises that he or she may or may not keep. Not God. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of bondage. That was a, a very important saying, promise for our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament because being brought out of the hellhole of Egypt meant that they were formed as a nation. And a nation that belonged to God, that was being brought to the promised land, and there in the promised land, the temple was built and came with all the sacrifices. And it was there, with the temple and the sacrifices, the people realized that what God said at the beginning of the Ten Commandments wasn't just looking back, but in the future. That when God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the, the land of bondage, that points forward to a, the greatest deliverance of all, the deliverance from sin and from Satan and death. 
The opening of the Ten Commandments points directly to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he certainly made the connection to this when, especially in the Gospel according to John, we hear himself, we hear him referring to himself many times as the I am. We saw that even this morning in John 6. I am the living bread. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the way and the truth and the life to the Father. Jesus says, I am the great I am. I am eternal and infinite, way beyond anything in this world. And yet the great I am is Emmanuel who's come into the world, even becoming our brother, taking our flesh on himself, and with that also taking our sins and paying for that with his death on the cross in order to save us, to, to deliver us from the bondage of sin, of Satan and death. And that means, brothers and sisters, every Sunday morning when we listen to the ten words of the covenant, and it starts off with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Think of the God who says, I love you so much. I give my son to die for you, to be your Lord and your Savior, so that you can be my children forever. Now, when we hear that, how do we respond? We hear what God has done for us, how much he loves us. Of course, we want a relationship with him. We want to walk with him. We want to serve him. We want to praise him and magnify him in our, in our whole life. But, but suppose God said, I did my part. I delivered you. Now you do your part and figure out how you're going to love me and walk in my ways. Uh-oh. I'm in a lot of trouble here because I still have a sinful nature. Imagine that I had to figure it out all by myself. Let's come up with a, an idea. I get the sense that God doesn't like materialism, so how about I sell everything I have and go live in a cave in the Rocky Mountains and slowly starve myself to death? Would God like that? I also understand that God doesn't like it if people don't love him, if they're not a Christian. Should I maybe go out and kill all non-Christians? Or God wants to fill this earth with people. May, I got one wife and five kids. Why don't I marry five women and have 50 kids? Good ideas? None of them are good ideas. They're disaster. It's going to be an absolute mess. And therefore, when God says, I'm the Lord your God who delivered you, who saved you, Wow, is that ever beautiful that now he gives us commandments which lay out for us crystal clear how we can walk with him, how we can serve him. This is an answer to prayer. This is what we need. This is what we want. And it's why we sang in Psalm 19 that God's law is sweeter than honeycomb. They far exceed in worth the finest goal on earth, his precious testimony, they are even sweeter than all that sweet and pure in combs that drip with honey. God's law is sweet. We savor it. It's just what we need. Then we look at God's law. He says, have no other God before me. Brilliant. That's, that's, yeah, don't have any other gods, right? That's brilliant. Don't kill your neighbor. <clears throat> Why didn't I think of that? 
don't commit adultery. I only have to have one wife and keep the one that I have. Really good idea. Wonderful way to live. Don't slander. Don't gossip. Ah, oh, that's a little tougher for me because I like a little bit of gossip, and it really doesn't hurt, does it? God says, oh, yes, it does. You're basically killing your neighbor with your words. What an amazing, brilliant, loving God that we have lays out in, in sweet and clear detail how to live our lives in a way that truly glorify him and truly loves our neighbor. And, of course, we have the rest of the Bible that unpacks these commandments. We have, for instance, Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount, which goes deeper into the commandments. He says things like, you know, if you call your brother an idiot, you're a murderer. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's adultery. It's very insightful. And then you have Paul with his Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. This unpacks the law of God and shows us how we are to live. Now, one thing that we could say about the Ten Commandments is that all things considered, they are rather brief. If this is the document for how to live our lives as a redeemed people, as a covenant people, it's pretty short. Well, we can make it even shorter. Jesus Christ is asked in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? He summarized and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. And even in our Heidelberg Catechism here, it says that's really what the law of God comes down to. But we can make it shorter. And we read that in Romans 13. In Romans 13, we read that love is the fulfilling of the law. I can summarize the whole Bible. I can summarize the whole law with just one word, love. And you can say, that, I don't know if that makes it easier for us. Well, maybe not, but it makes things a whole lot clearer. Whenever we're looking at a commandment, or we're looking at any situation in life, either what we're doing to God or our neighbor, what we're doing in our life, whatever we do, we have to examine it. We have to think about it and say, is this an act of love to God and my neighbor? And when you do that, you begin to own the commandment, and the commandment owns you. Our Heidelberg Catechism is actually very good in explaining this. Just take a commandment like, you shall not murder. When I was younger, I thought I got this commandment down pat because I can tell you I never murdered anybody. I didn't even come close to murdering anybody. Not even close. And then our Heidelberg Catechism explains the commandment in Lord's Day 40. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, desire of revenge, and he regards all these as murder. And now I'm busted. Because I do all these things. When I call my brother an idiot, when I bear a grudge, when I'm envious, when I put somebody down, when I gossip, I'm killing my neighbor. And that's not an act of love. That means, brothers and sisters, whenever we're in a relationship, let's say, 
ask yourself this question. In my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, in my body language, do I show love to my neighbor? Imagine that we all do that in our marriages, that in our relationship with our wife or our husband, we're always examining our relationship and how we act to one another, and we ask ourselves the question, am I loving my wife? Does she thank God for me as her husband? Because I love her, and I care for her, and I cherish her, and I forgive her, and I'm self-controlled, and I... I want nothing more than tenderness and love. Man, our our marriage is going to take off like a rocket ship. It's going to be an amazing marriage. And the same is true within the communion of saints. Do we love one another? You know, you can go through times as a congregation where there's differences of opinion, and we certainly had a lot of strife over the last couple of years with COVID and restrictions and all that. But are we able to forgive one another, to bury the hatchet, to not carry grudges, to reach out and love and care for one another? Because if we don't, then the communion of saints is as flat as a board. But if in our attitude, in our words, in our deeds, we extend ourselves to each other in love and forgiveness and peace and gentleness and self-control, the communion of saints would be so amazing that everyone will say, who wouldn't want to be a part of this congregation? You see, brothers and sisters, we have a God who's not only saved us from our sins in our Lord Jesus Christ, He has laid out in the most exquisite, sweet, beautiful detail how to live in a beautiful relationship with him and with our neighbor, loving one another genuinely, even under the most strenuous and difficult situations. That's particularly when love has to come out. There's a reason that the angels in heaven are are shouting for joy to see God's children living in this way, reflecting the image of their Heavenly Father. That brings us to our second point where we look at the first commandment. Included in our Lord's Day is a discussion about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And you might ask yourself the question, why is the first commandment included in this Lord's Day? Every other commandment has its own Lord's Day. One commandment, the third commandment, actually has two Lord's Days dedicated to it. Well, actually, a better question than asking why is this Lord's Day, why why is this commandment in this Lord's Day, is to ask the question, why is this the first commandment? Why is the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, the obvious reason is, if, if God has come from eternity, from infinity and beyond, and entered our midst, and gave his son to die for us, why wouldn't the most important thing in our mind be him, God, and our our relationship with him? No other gods before him. That should be obvious and clear. But the second thing is, brothers and sisters, if we don't get this commandment right, nothing else really matters. I mean, if God is not number one in our life, why would I observe the Sunday? Why would I honor my father and mother? 
Why would I care about my neighbor? I can rip him off in a business deal. I can withhold his wages because I'm number one. What do I care about my neighbor? Well, you can't think any of those things if God is number one in our life. If above all else, we worship and adore the God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, then all the other commandments become important to us as well. Now, our Lord's Day mentions a, a number of things that we ought not to do because we love God and we worship and adore him. But it also mentions in question answer 94 something very positive and emotional. It says that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. That, that paragraph starts off by saying that I rightly come to know the only true God. We, we need to get to know him. No, no. I want to get to know him. I want to know my God. And as a congregation, we are so blessed in, in this becoming real. We have preaching every Sunday. We have Lord's Supper this morning. We have catechism classes. We have small study groups. We have Christian education. We have, uh, all of us own a Bible. So many opportunities to get to know our God better through reading and through study. And that's actually a, a journey of a lifetime. I have uh, members of the congregation who are over 100 years old. And talking to them, they have listened to upwards of 10,000 sermons in their life. And they say to me, you know, imagine a 101-year-old sister saying, you know, I can, I can listen to thousands of sermons. I can read my Bible every day. And I'm always learning more. There's so much to know about God. We need to know our God. We need to see him in the scriptures and also to experience him and to know him and how he acts with us, to open our eyes to what's going on in our life. Has God given you a wife? What a blessing. Has he given you children? Has he given you health and strength, a job? These are all uh, wonderful examples of getting to know our God and what he does in, in our life. And so as our catechism says, we grow to trust in God. We know that even in tough times when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not need to be afraid. It is well, it is well with our soul. In fact, it's particularly in challenging times that we get to know and trust our God even better. Again, having seen this many times, a family going through difficulties, parents receive a special needs child. And and when that happens, you know, everyone else might say, I'm relieved that my child wasn't born, you know, with all those problems. The parents of special needs children say, we learn what a blessing this is from God. You learn to love someone special. And you learn what's really important in your life. Family, relationships, and times of trouble cause us to be even more focused on our God. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, quit thinking about stuff. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek righteousness. 
and the Lord will be with you. In our life, as we get to know our God through all the ups and downs, we learn to love, fear, and honor him with all our heart. The last question answer of our Lord's day seems like it's making the most obvious point possible that it's got to be the dumbest thing in the world to have or invent something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Right? That's that's dumb, right? To put our trust in anybody but this God. And if you look at the previous question and answer, you say it's actually pretty easy to do this because we are to avoid idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. We'll all nod sagely because I ain't going to do that. Anybody here in a witchcraft? Superstition? You pray to saints? We don't do that, right? So the first commandment seems pretty easy. Heidelberg Catechism was written a few hundred years ago. Particular time, particular culture. Things do change, and that's why you don't read only the Heidelberg Catechism, but you also turn to Scripture. We turn to what our Lord Jesus Christ said in his Sermon on the Mount. We read that in Matthew. Christ says, you know, put your treasure in heaven, seek your treasure in heaven. And then he says later, don't worry about stuff. And then in between that he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, you can't serve God and money. Now, that's relevant for today. Because we live in a culture where money is God. Where stuff, that's what makes you happy. That's what makes you special. It's what makes you important. And I would ask the question of all of us, and I certainly include myself too. Do you define your happiness by your money, by your material things? That's certainly the thinking of our world. Now, th this doesn't mean that money and material things in and of themselves are, are bad. We need money. We need money. Got to heat our home. Got to pay for this church building and the minister's honorarium, his salary. School, Christian school, costs a lot of money. We need money. Money's not bad. But as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money and acquiring money is a gift from the Lord. It's when you love it so much that it's the thing that makes you happy. It's the driving force in your life. It's what you hunger for. It's what you dream about. It's what you're constantly after. When you go there, then you squeeze God out of your life. So Jesus Christ says, there's not enough room in your heart for both God and money. If, if material things is, becomes so important to you, then there's not enough room for God. And that, brothers and sisters, is devastating. A couple of weeks ago, I read an article by a person whose name is Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, in the early 1800s, built an empire and a fortune that by the time he died, he had more money than the United States Treasury. 
His son took over and doubled the fortune. Then the two grandsons inherited, and the whole thing crumbled. And the youngest son wrote, Money, inheriting money, destroyed my life. I had no hope. I had nothing to seek. I had nothing to work for. There was nothing important in my life. I should have seen that wealth is my family. Now that's not a, a, a perfectly Christian perspective, but indeed it tells us something, because I have seen in our own churches, I've seen, for instance, men who wanted to build empires, who wanted to accumulate money, to the point that they didn't work on their marriage. And their kids despised dad, but their hand was out for the money. And then one day, when he became old, and he was so rich, but he didn't have his family, and he realized in the end he didn't have his God either, he realized how incredibly stupid was his life, because money was God. But Job says, I was born naked, and I will die naked. Money doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me wealthy. What makes me wealthy is my God. This great I am, the one who has come to me in his son Jesus Christ, who laid down his life to wash me in his blood, that I can be a, an heir of life everlasting, a child of God. I am so rich. One day he's going to wipe the tears from my eyes. Sin and death and pain and disease will be no more. You can't get it better than that. Brothers and sisters, you know, that's, that's what the first commandment is teaching us. Open your eyes. Who is the most important person? What is the most important thing in your life? That this is our God. That we know who he is and what he's done for us. And I love him. I adore him. I want a relationship with him. And in that relationship, I also discover so many other beautiful and valuable things, like my family, like my congregation, the communion of saints. This is where we're rich. This is what our God gives to us. This, this is my God. Amen.